Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 217 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Nick Hutchison all about mastering your reading habits. But first to last week's question, which was... Who or what is inspiring or motivating you at the moment? We did have uh, an episode, uh, a comment from a previous episode, uh, which was from Wendy Karras about episode 215. Um, And she talked about all the techniques she's used in business, which was take Monday to Sunday and color code the days, green for go, 80% revenue generating activities, yellow for buffer, 20% for other, red for free days. Tested it for 35 years, best decision and the compensation uh, increased remarkably, continued success, which is fantastic. So, and then on to this week's question, which was who or what is inspiring or motivating you at, the t- at, this, at this moment? Karen Heenan said, four days in Vegas and a certain keynote speaker. <laughs> Amy Lee said, I have been inspired. Oh, God. I'm sensing a theme here. Inspired by the keynote speaker at 20 Books Vegas. Matt Goodall said, uh, you always inspire me and uh, your unwavering dedication. You guys, your unwavering dedication to improve yourself and then to share that knowledge with the community combined with your output of priceless prose is truly inspiring. Aww. My answer is a double-edged sword, Sasha. You motivate me, but you also freak me out. Whilst you motivate me to write lots and write regularly, I'm happy if I get down more than 500 words. That's my daily minimum. But when you talk about limiting yourself to 8,000 words, it freaks me out it makes me feel like a loser because i can just about get a tenth of that writing in a day so you motivate me but sometimes it makes me feel unaccomplished okay so first of all it's not eight thousand words it's five thousand words um and you've got to remember that this is something that has taken me a really really long time to get to start out by writing five thousand words in a day as an average i certainly have spent most of my writing career not being able to do that um it's only because of clifton strengths that i have worked out how to do it the other part of this is that i know an awful lot about the story before I begin. So um, the only reason I can get to 5,000 words is because I know everything that's going to happen. I've done all of the thinking, I've ironed out most of the issues, and then it's just a matter of just getting it on the page. And I have experimented enough to figure out how to um, write best with my strengths. Um, And there's other things that I don't do quickly. There's other things that I don't do well. Like, you know, there's lots of part, like I can't proofread, I can't use a comma. Like I have to rely on other people to do all of this kind of stuff. So there's lots of areas where, you know, I'm not that fast or not uh, able to do things that quickly. And the other thing is you have to remember, I'm not smashing out 5,000 words a day, every day, every week of the year. I write hard and fast in blocks. So, you know, this year I have only written three books. <laughs> so it's not, you know, yes, I'm writing at the pace of somebody who writes, you know, uh, God knows how many words a year and books a year, but I'm not actually delivering that amount. Next year, I probably will deliver more, but I, you know, partly because I've now reduced the amount of freelance that I do. But um 
it's not the case that I'm just, yeah, just don't assume that I'm doing that all day, every day. I do way too many things to be able to write uh, 5,000 words a day every day for every day of the year. It's just, it's just not how it works. One of the things that I decided in Vegas was to uh, switch up the podcast a little bit. I'm going to remove the weekly question and book recommendation of the week. Um, if I have a question, I will be asking one. And if I have a book recommendation, I will be giving one. But I would just love your comments on the show in general, rather than me kind of directing comments uh, to questions each week. So yeah, there won't be a question of the week this week or going forward, but I would still love, love, love your comments on the show. So if you have thoughts or um, reflections, please do let me know anyway, because I will still read them out. In personal news and updates then, I am back from Vegas, finally. So it is uh, Thursday the 16th of November as I record this. I got home on Sunday the 12th and I have not slept too well since. I got back and my wife and my kid were both sick. They had some kind of like 24-hour sickness bug, so Atlas was throwing up most of the evening. Well, when I say most of the evening, I mean literally every half an hour, uh, all night. So uh, it has not helped my jet lag and I am still really quite tired. However, Vegas was amazing. I had one of the most fun weeks I've had in a really long time. And I think I managed my energy really, really well. So one of the things I did was to have an hour to myself in the morning, an hour to myself in the middle of the day, and an hour to myself in the evening. No matter what I was doing, I always made sure I had those. I also took a ton of vitamins. I slept when I could. And I think because I prioritized one-on-one time, Obviously, there were times where I was in crowds and I, when I was in crowds, I used my loop earplugs, which helped to just take down some of the raw and the sensory overload. And I, yeah, I did sort of after the keynote, obviously, I had lots of people to speak to. And after my sessions, I spoke to lots of people. But the times where you, where I was most sociable, so like, for example, dinners or, um, breakfast in the morning, I would be in much, much smaller groups. So just one, one to one or one to sort of three, for example. And that really, really helped the introvert overload. I do have a, a couple of extrovert tendencies, uh, mostly around like brainstorming and thinking. I really enjoy thinking out loud and sort of bouncing off other people. But for the most part, <clears throat> I am an introvert. And I am socially also awkward. <laughs> so so Vegas theoretically was my worst nightmare. Uh, but I've really enjoyed it. And I think part of that was about that preparation. I also did things like I made sure I took a humidifier. I took lip balm. These sounds like really ridiculous things, but Vegas is extraordinarily dry and a very, very different climate to the UK. And so I really did suffer. Like it was difficult existing in that environment. And then of course, the hotels are designed to keep you awake and keep you in the casinos, which are super smoky. So those things combined, like, you could have a bad time if you weren't prepared. I, however, thanks to a couple of people who'd sort of sent me things in advance, was very, very prepared. And um, 
I just had the most wonderful week. It was so much fun and I learned so much about myself. So you guys know that I have gone on this journey with uh, strengths and coaching where I have realized I didn't have a lot of self-worth and I never felt like I was enough and all of the rest of it. And it just felt like a huge closing of the door in Vegas. It felt like I I don't think that personal development and growth is ever really done. It's certainly not for me. I don't think I'll ever be satisfied or, or, or finish trying to improve myself to be a better human. But I certainly feel like I have now moved on from a lot of those issues that I came to strengths for initially. The... I stepped on stage and I'll I'll be honest, right? I was nervous of stepping on stage as well as being nervous about under delivering. And I decided a few months ago that I could only be nervous about one of those things. So I was very intentional with what I said about Vegas. And I made sure to tell everybody I wasn't afraid of stepping on the stage. I had no problems with stepping on stage. The stage was fine. I love the stage. And the funny thing is, by the time I stepped onto that stage, I really was fine with the stage, which is crazy because I was shitting my pants. Like when you face a crowd of over a thousand people, it is a lot of people to look at. And but but this is such as the power of, you know, repetition and self-talk. And because I was so intentional with that self-talk, I really, truly believe that I did convince myself that I would be fine. And so what happened is I stepped on that stage and you better believe I had the biggest grin you can possibly imagine because I was just like, fuck yeah, let's go. And so then obviously I gave the keynote to which was just like, honestly, it was like taking drugs. I don't take drugs, but it's what I imagine taking drugs would be like because I I was so high afterwards when I climbed off of that stage, like the audience laughing, the audience clapping, like, oh my fucking God. The number of people that came up to me and said they thoroughly enjoyed it, they felt like I was talking to them. They felt like, um, you know, that finally they'd been, they, it was the thing that they need to hear. All of these things, like people don't have to come up to you and say these things. And I was so grateful and so appreciative of everybody who took the time to say, you know, these wonderful things that it really, it really was the most amazing moment. And I'm just so grateful that I had that opportunity. And I, and I just, there was so much overwhelming praise that I wasn't able to devalue what I'd done. Like my past self, because of the lack of self-worth, I would, any achievement that I got, I would find a way to pick holes in it. I'd find a way to devalue it. And sure, yes, I've rewatched some videos and are there things I can improve? Yes, definitely. But knowing that hasn't, like made me devalue it because I still think I did a fucking good job. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever said that ever about anything that I've done, you know? Um, and it just, it felt like a big shift inside me. I probably sound like a right wank- wanker saying all of this, but I just, I, I'm always honest with you guys. And so I'm trying to be honest about how much I felt that inner shift. I felt so confident getting off that stage. And I just, 
it was it was uh, such a privilege to be able to say things that landed and had Im- had an impact for people and that they that resonated for them and it's really made me wonder about what I do going forward because that was such a natural experience for me I thoroughly enjoyed it and I kind of want to do it again <laughs> like I definitely want to do it again. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that means. I'm still really intellecting. I'm still fucking exhausted, to be perfectly honest. Uh, with After my kid got sick, you know, it's not helped the jet lag. So, yeah. What am I working on now? Um, well, I need to plan next year. And so I need to do some of that in the next week or so. I also need to re-outline my vampire story. So I will be doing that today. And I'm going to try to outline all... Well, I'm going to try and outline the full story and then break that into books, which is not how I normally outline, but that's what I'm going to try and do. And I think that's probably it. I still have a teeny tiny little bit of freelance to catch up on uh, since being away, but mostly it's working on the next vampire book, planning 2024, and I have made some decisions about courses and nonfiction and what that's going to look like. So um, I'll be telling patrons first, then my newsletter, um, and then I will announce here as well, because yeah, keep an eye out. There are things in the works. Rebel of the week this week is Lottie. Lottie says, I grew up all around the world due to my dad's job. So I'm what you call a third culture kid. Unlike what most people expect, it wasn't glorious, but For me, who dislikes change, it was absolutely horrendous. And having to say goodbye to all my friends every few years was just sad. I grew up to be quite lonely and depressed and have worked with a therapist for a long time now. But finally, I did what I would call a rebel move. I have now written three books on on third culture kid experiences, the third of which is coming out next May and speak about my story at lots of different events. The books have been very popular and I have received thanks from third culture kids like me and their parents who can now help their kids adjust. That's my rebel story. Ah, I love that. I love that you're turning what was a negative experience for you into something super positive that's helping and and affecting and influencing other people in a really positive way. I think that is just wonderful. Thank you so much for your rebel story. And if you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, something big, something small, or something in between. You can email your rebel story to Becca over on rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. One new patron this week. Welcome to Altair Star. Uh, And a big thank you to all my existing patrons. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content from as little as $2 a month, you can by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, that's it from me this week. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by Nick Hutchison. Nick stands as the visionary force behind Book Thinkers a growing seven-figure marketing agency that seamlessly bridges the worlds of authors and readers. In just over seven years, he has organically built a platform that reaches over one million people each month. Nick's podcast, Book Thinkers, Life-Changing Books, is a global top 2% show that features captivating interviews with world-class authors. Through the use of his platform, Nick has helped hundreds of authors expand their reach to hundreds of millions of readers and drive significant revenue growth as part of their book campaigns. His services include short-form video production, podcast booking, and social media book reviews. 
Now, Nick has dedicated his life to helping millions of readers take action on the information they learn and rise to their potential through his books, speaking, and personal brand as a whole. This was the inspiration for his new book, Rise of the Reader, where he drives, dives into strategies for mastering your reading habits and applying what you learn. Hello and welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. And you have the coolest bookshelves ever. Outdoing me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Honestly, uh, I'm like 90% of the way to my perfect beauty bell book bookcase. I grew up, um, one of my aunts was very wealthy and had a mansion and owned a village. And um, so she had a genuine bell beauty library with ladders with like 30 feet ceilings. It was the most insane thing you've ever seen in your life. And so, of course, that is now my standard of acceptability of bookcases. And I, can, I can't get back there, but I'm still, I'm striving. I will forever strive for that kind of bookcase again. <laughs> that is exactly what I'd like my future house to have. One of right. those just beautiful, big libraries with the cozy sofa in the corner and the ladders. And yeah, I look forward to that one day too. It, it's the dream. Well, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about you and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Well, what might surprise anybody that can see my background, because I still have a thousand books behind me, is that I was not much of a reader growing up. In fact, I was more of the athlete stereotype, not really much of the academic. And that behavior, that attitude of, I don't want to read books, sort of carried with me throughout most of my college experience as well. But everything changed for me when I was going into my senior year of college and I took an internship at a local software company. And my boss at the time, Kyle, he recognized some unfulfilled potential, I think. He, he basically told me, hey, Nick, you're commuting an hour each way, five days a week. It's 10 hours in the car every week. Instead of listening to the same music over and over and over again, why don't you try out listening to personal development podcasts, business podcasts, sales podcasts. So that's kind of where I started. And what was really interesting about that time for me was that so many of the people being interviewed were giving at least some credit for their success to the books that they were reading, business, personal development, psychology, philosophy, finance, and everything in between. So I went to my local Barnes and Noble, sort of list in hand, uh, and I decided to grab a few books. And that was about 10 years ago, and I have not looked back ever since. I'm somebody who has probably averaged at least 50 books a year, as many as 100 in a year, and uh, I'm just a big reader these days. Yeah, you and me both. I I ebb and flow, but I do. I'm I'm the same. About 120 a year is about what what I do, and it's not enough. I'm like trying to find like snippets of time to squeeze in more. In fact, audiobooks have helped me devour more quicker. Like there's very very rarely a time when I don't have something like either a book in my hand or in my ears or or whatever. So yeah, definitely speaking to my heart. Um, okay, well, you do have a new book about reading. So why don't we start with why you're so passionate about reading and why you think everybody should read, not just read, but read more personal development books specifically. About 100 billion people have lived on this planet and millions of them have written books and thousands of those books probably detail somebody else overcoming the same problem that you're facing on a daily basis. That's kind of where it all starts for me. So when I was in my early 20s, I had a lot of insecurities. I cared way too much about what other people thought of me. And that caused a lot of stress and anxiety in certain situations. 
And on the other side of the spectrum, I had developed this ego because of sports, like a little bit of a competitive nature. Sometimes that would represent itself at the expense of other people. And so it was a confusing place to be. Like I wasn't a lot of fun to be around and I wasn't having a lot of fun in my own head. And I started reading and implementing these personal development books that helped me understand why I should be positively impacting other people, how I should carry myself, the downsides of narcissism and all sorts of things like that. And I started to remove ego and I started to remove insecurities and anxieties. And I just started to live a much better life. And that entire transformation happened very quickly. Again, because I was reading books about how other people solve those problems. And then I just implemented their solutions. It was like the best shortcut ever. Instead of spending dozens of years figuring it out myself, why not read about how somebody else did it? It's like a shortcut, condensing decades of lived experience into days of reading. And so my life improved a lot. I mean, today, here I am 10 years later, I'm happy, I'm healthy, I'm wealthy. I get to read books for a living. Uh, I designed my own reality. And we could talk about some of the rebellious nature of that in, in a few minutes, I'm sure. Um, but I, I want other people to be able to do the same thing. Like my life philosophy is that we should all enjoy the passage of time. And that life doesn't have to be so hard. Other people figured it out. And then we could just read their books and figure it out ourselves much faster. So that's sort of uh, why I'm so passionate about this industry of personal development and reading. Now, I think there are tons of benefits for reading any types of books. We could talk about that too. But personal development in particular, I'm just passionate about because it's helped me solve literally every single problem that I come up with. It could disappear after I read a good book and implement the solutions. I have two questions for you. Um, number one, if you're into like personal development, have you heard of Clifton Strengths? Yes. Okay. So I have a third question then. So my second question is, how do you feel about competition now? I love competition, but in a collaborative way. Okay. Not uh, at the expense of people around me, but with people around me, if that makes sense. Okay. So do you know your Clifton strengths? I, I've done so many of those tests over time. Um, I don't, you okay. know, I remember for one of them, I mean, I was an ENTJ. Do you remember okay, which test that's that was? That's Myers-Briggs. That's, that's Myers-Briggs. Briggs, yeah. Uh, I have worked through all of them at one point or another, but no, I don't remember. Okay. The reason I ask is because I'm like super highly obsessed with Clifton strengths because their success is basically success pathways, right? So instead of focusing on your weaknesses, you focus on your strengths. Um, and my number one strength is competition. So the minute ah. I heard you saying, oh, I don't know about competition, I was like, wow, I beg to differ. <laughs> but obviously in a healthy, like balcony way, not in a, you know, treading on everybody to, to get to the cop. And that's not going to help anybody. Um, but that's not what we're here to talk about. So let me ask you, like, how do you choose what to read next? Like you can see behind me, everybody who listens to this show knows that I, I have a hard time picking. I have a huge, very like indulgent library of books uh, to choose from. And it's, and it's a problem. So, you know, how do you think my listeners who are often writers should choose books? Well, just like you, I spend a lot of time reading. So I'm never obsessed about picking the, the right next book because I'm reading a ton of books. Um, in the world of personal development, 
business communication, writing, you know, books about these subjects, I would, I would do a little personal inventory and I'll kind of pause and I would say, is there a problem that I'm dealing with on a daily basis that I could resolve by reading a book about how somebody else figured it out? And the following math equation always sticks in my head when I talk about this. If you're dealing with a problem on a daily basis, over the next 30 years, you'll deal with that problem 11,000 times, right? 30 times 365, roughly 11,000 times. So why not spend the time finding the right book, reading that book, implementing what you've learned, and over the next 50 days, solve that problem so that you don't have to deal with it 10,950 more times, right? That's how I think about it. Do a personal inventory, evaluate your life, remove inconveniences, solve problems. So that's, that's probably the right place to start if somebody is time pressured and only has time to read a couple of books a year or something like that. Yeah, I can't. I, I suspect we're talking to a, a group of listeners who love books, possibly as much as we do. Um, so I have a question from one of my patrons. How do you balance like the joyful escapism fun reading with reading for like purpose, be that personal development or perhaps like author business development or perhaps like writing craft development? Because we can quite um, I don't know about you, but I am like a very happy workaholic and um like i designed my life to do the thing that i love the most so like i write all day and that brings me joy right so it's very hard for me not to work because it's the thing i love the most um but what that can mean is i will only read for work purposes and then you kind of turn it into a chore so talk to talk to listeners about keeping that balance yeah it's a great question um, just like you, I'm a very happy workaholic. I've also designed a life that includes being paid to read, right? Authors pay me to review their books. So I spend a lot of time reading and that's also work for me. I'm still in my 20s. And so I feel like I haven't hit that point where I'm looking for escapism that much. And it might be because I genuinely enjoy my life and there's plenty of reading built into what I do. And by making progress and solving problems and building my business, uh, joy comes as a result of that. So I'm, I think most of my escapism comes in the form of Netflix or, or TV or movies. Uh, so I, I'm not doing a lot of like traditional fantasy fiction or anything like that. But I think there will be a point in my life where I start to care less about making progress and growing my business. And I start to turn to all of these wonderful fiction series that do provide escapism, which I think can be valuable. I'm just not at that point in my life right now. So uh, maybe I'm not the best person to answer it. I will say though, that from a creativity, from a vocabulary enhancement, from a, an attention enhancement perspective, I think reading fiction has a ton of benefits. So many of us live in a world today of instant gratification and scrolling through a thousand videos a minute, and we can't even focus. Like we can't even perform work or get into a flow state or do deep work without checking our phone every five minutes. And so monotasking, the act of just reading a physical paper book and blocking everything else out is a skill that you can develop. And it's beneficial to other areas of your life. Like that skill can be transferred to work and things like that. 
So I think there are so many benefits to reading, regardless of what type of reading you're performing. Um, I just, yeah, just like you, I, I find a lot of joy in the nonfiction, personal development, business style stuff that I read. So do you have books that you read for your own personal development and then books that you read for work? Or do you separate it? Do you try, do you find sometimes what happens if you have to read for work and it become, and it, and you don't enjoy it? Well, there are authors that we refund <laughs> because I'm not going to promote a book to my audience that I don't find valuable personally. Uh, so that, that does happen. We've gotten better at filtering those out before we choose to work with somebody. Like we, we have enough inbound demand to be a little bit more selective with the people that we work for. When I first started, I was just like, somebody wants to pay me to read like, yes, it didn't matter what they were writing about. So I even reviewed fiction and, and stuff like that back in the day, but now it's, nonfiction, business, philosophy, psychology. Um, there's a great rule that I try to follow called the rule of 100. And it sort of works like this. Take the number 100, subtract your age, and that's how many pages of a book you have to read before you can determine whether or not you can put it down. And so for me, I'm 29. I have to read 71 pages of a book before I'm wise enough to know whether or not it's a good fit for me. And so let's say I was 55, I'd only have to read 45 pages, right? The wiser you get, the less you have to read. So uh, sometimes I think about rules like that, but I do think life is too short to read a bad book. And if you're not into it, put it down. Yeah, I uh, used to be much less discerning than I am now. Like now I know pretty quickly whether or not a book is for me. Um, But, you know, I'm thousands of books in now, you know, a few years ago. You, you just, you know, keep going. You keep chugging along, hoping it's going to get better. <laughs> what percentage of the books that you're reading are fiction versus nonfiction? Okay, so up, so it depends what I'm writing because I write fiction and I write nonfiction. I'm very much a product of what I input. So the more I input of something, the more I output of something. Right. Up until this last year, I was almost exactly 50-50 this year I'm about 70, 30. I, I've kind of burnt out a little bit on the nonfiction. I'm really struggling to find anything unique. Any, I can't find anything to tell me anything new. I can't. So I'm basically this year, I've just binged fiction. And as a result, I have output a lot of fiction. Um, so yeah, sometimes like I'm a bit of a, I'm, I guess I'm mood based, like, and again, do I want to learn something? So for me, I'm just about to dive back into reading nonfiction on on craft again, because there's certain elements of my writing that I want to improve. So I'm going to dive into that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have read a lot of self-development books. <laughs> so I'm always looking for something like new or a different angle or a different yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to please me these days. <laughs> yeah, I I totally get what you're saying. Uh you know, sometimes I think oh, I'm always 3 feet from gold, right? Like you're you're one or two pages away from that thing that could transform your entire life. But once you get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books into the self-development space, you realize a lot of it is repetitive. And so sometimes people will ask me, should I write a book in the personal development or nonfiction business space? And I'll say, do you have anything unique? And they'll say yes. And they'll tell me, and then I'll say, well, here are five books on that subject. Like what is, what are you providing to the world that's different? And maybe I'm kind of leading a, a different transition, but it makes me think about my book, Rise of the Reader. Because for years, as I built my community online, book thinkers, 
I received hundreds of the same questions. Like, how do I choose the right book? How do I set an attention for the book? How do I take great notes? What do I do with my notes? How do I implement the behavior changes that I'm looking to implement? And it was always this subject of books. And I'm like, I couldn't find anything to help people solve this problem. That's an indication that there's a gap. There's something missing, which is hard to find. Like I would have much rather, I'm not a writer, right? I would have much rather just had a resource to point people to on taking effective notes and implementing personal development information. But uh, I just didn't find it. So that's why I decided to write the book. I mean, you are literally a writer now. <laughs> I am. Yes, you you're are, right. <laughs> literally. We are what we do. And you have written a book. <laughs> Therefore, you are a writer now. It um, does exist now. That yeah. is true. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a special moment, that, isn't it? When you get to see it and hold it I like like my what there are two favorite moments in the process for me one is seeing the cover and two is holding the first copy like I love those moments because it's so intangible like we spew thousands and thousands of words out every day and then like it's just this you know thing in the digital ether world and then you actually get to hold it and it's the best thing ever well it is for me yeah it really is I you know the process for me was rough when I first started. It took me about three years from, okay, I'm going to write a book to what I'm holding in my hands right now, maybe closer to 2.75 years. But uh, yeah, it was, it was tough. I mean, I started with morning pages and uh, I would try to warm my brain up before I would jump into writing. And then it would fall in terms of priority and I wouldn't write for a little while. And then I get back into the groove and it was just, come on, Nick, you're disciplined, like sit down and write every single day. And I think what was tough for me was that I'd never taken the time to define my own reading and implementation strategies. I was just doing it. So I almost had to like observe my own behavior from a third party perspective and say, what the heck does Nick Hutchison do to to read and implement personal development books so that I could communicate it in a simplified way to other people so that they could implement it, you know? So yeah, it was a, it was a process. Absolutely. I completely understand. One of the books I've written is about how I deconstruct. And that was a process of making conscious what I have made unconscious, like I've internalized, Mm. like automated that process. So I completely understand what you're saying. What I will say is the second book will be easier. Because you'll have those processes in place. It does get easier and quicker. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that. And, you know, because I have my own methods for deconstructing. So it fascinates me when other people have methods that they use to kind of take the information, deconstruct it and then implement. So talk to me about how you do that. How do you approach a book and then extract the nuggets of gold? Sure. For me, it all starts with intention. Uh, sometimes I'll meet people and I'll say, hey, Sasha, what are you reading? And you'll tell me and I'll say, why? And you'll just be like, I don't know. I saw it on Instagram. Not you, because you're very intentional, but most of the people in this world of personal development and business reading. And so I, I started to think about how do you build an intention for a book? And I love the SMART goal framework. Most of us are familiar with it, but I'll just run through it one more time for anybody that's not. So SMART is an acronym that stands for specific. You need to set a specific goal for each one of these self-development books that you're reading. M stands for measurable. There's a a legendary management guru, Peter Drucker. He says, what's not being measured can't be managed. So you need to set a goal for the book that's measurable. You know whether or not it's achieved its intended purpose. A stands for attainable. You need to set a realistic goal. You can't say, I want to implement this book and make $100 million next month. Like you need to set something realistic, like find and implement a few things. 
R stands for relevant. Are you emotionally connected to this outcome? So when you're reading self-development, is this book going to solve a problem, right? Will it satisfy a curiosity? Will it teach you about a person that you want to learn more about? Will it help you develop a skill? You want to be emotionally connected to it. And then T stands for time bound. So you want to give yourself a deadline to take action. And so one of the popular business books that people are reading right now is called Hundred Million Dollar Leads by Alex Hormozzi. It's a book about lead generation for businesses. So everybody in your audience is an author. We all have to sell our books. So this is a good book. And everybody just reads the book and they just hope that it's going to change their life. Instead, I say, set a smart goal, build an intention for the book, something like, Find and implement at least two lead generation strategies for my business book thinkers by the end of November, because I stink at lead gen, right? That's specific. It's measurable. Find and implement two things. It's attainable, not make a hundred million dollars, but just implement two things. It's relevant to my business. So I'm emotionally connected to actually implementing the information and it's time bound. I said by the end of November. So I'll actually write that intention on the inside cover of the book. And I'll read it every single time I dive in and read a few more pages so that I can tell my brain what to filter for within these pages. Because everything could be exciting, right? And you might input the wrong information. You want to be really narrow in your focus. That's how I think we start to deconstruct these books and get the most out of them. We have to set a realistic and attainable goal. Uh, and I call it an intention. Yeah, I love that. So, uh, for example, I taught a class last night on... Uh... I deconstructed The Lies of Loch Lamora, which is a fiction book, and it's kind of grim, dark fantasy. And I went in knowing that what I wanted to get out of it were, were, were all of the tools that the author had used to create morally gray protagonists, well, a protagonist, and uh, like the grim, dark setting. So everything I read, I was reading through that lens and framework and everything I was like kind of highlighting or making notes. Interesting that you say that you write in the book. Obviously, like there are two types of bookworms. <laughs> <laughs> there are the bookworms that think books are you know sacrosanct and like they will never ever like do anything to them and then there are people like me who yes. don't hear my books I mean what I won't do I'm such a hypocrite I will not bend the spine of a book like that is like torture to me because I like all the spines out so that they like I need them to look neat but you can be assured there's pen chocolate crumbs there's sticky tabs in them like the corners are all ruffled but the spine always perfect <laughs> and i uh at, at the risk of maybe getting some backlash here i'll tell everybody about something that i do this is uh this is a no-no for even the most extreme book lovers <laughs> oh god do i need to i need to brace myself Hold yes on. <laughs> brace yourself brace yourself get relaxed yeah. because you're about to tense up <laughs> so if i find something in a book that I think is exactly what I was looking for. And I want to retain it. I want to keep it with me all day. I ripped the page out. Oh my God. I, <laughs> oh I ripped the page out. Oh my God, no. Right? And I, I keep it with me all day long. And every time I go for my phone or my keys or my wallet and I bump into the page, I rip it out and I look at it. Now, here's the thing. I do put the page back after I'm done with it. Right. I put the page back in the book, but that's how I, so repetition leads to retention. You want to review that information as often as possible. I rip it out. You're like, okay, uh, podcast is over. Yeah. I'm done talking to you. We can't speak anymore. I hear you. Like, 
Breathe in through your yeah. nose. Each to their own. So my wife, <laughs> we, we this is a bit of a, a in joke in the family. Um, I would rather buy my wife a new copy of a book that I already own because she um, every time we go on holiday the book falls apart because of how she reads them. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't like care for it. But no, here's the thing. The, fu- the funny thing is like, I believe in engaging with the book and there's something to be said about, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of distributed cognition, but like, it's the question about, you know, where does cognition happen? Is, is it re- retained, um, restricted to confines of brain and skull and bone and cells? Or does it happen like outside? One of the reasons I still write so many ideas and things on post-its is the physicality and the nature of it. And that's mm-hmm. why I write in books, because I feel like I engage better with the content. Um, so I, I get it. I'm not okay <laughs> get it <laughs> yeah it's um it, it's something that i started to do a number of years ago and i think i think at first it was uh i posted about it one time on social media and i probably had like a hundred people viral. say unfollowed unfollowed <laughs> unfollowed unfollowed <laughs> and uh so now it's just now i have to own it you know yeah. i had somebody tell me recently because i i talk about that strategy inside of rise of the reader and i had somebody suggest i should put like those little scissor marks down the inside of the page oh so my I god could, like, yeah you know you that'd need be like to do a nice special detail editions element. of that yeah yes i think so yeah you have like, to do signs. yeah exactly exactly <laughs> So how do you engage with the book other than ripping pages out? What else do you do? Like, do you, are you like me? Do you write, write notes in it? What kind of notes do you write? Like what kinds of things do you do as you're going through the book to help you retain that information other than ripping the pages? (laughs) My process has evolved a lot over time and, and it will continue to change. Um, Right now I'm really focused on not multitasking. And so what I mean by that is, I believe reading and note-taking are two separate activities. And if you multitask between both, then you're less efficient when you combine everything together. So what I like to do is I like to define my intention. I write it on the inside cover. I read that intention a couple of times. So I'm telling my brain what to filter for. And as I'm reading, if I find one of those potential, let's say, lead mechanisms in the example I gave before that I might want to implement, I'll just quickly circle the page number and I'll highlight what I'd like to go back and revisit. But I try not to lose my flow state. I want to continue reading. So I go all the way through the book like that. And then I'll go back through a second time. And the second time that I go back through the book, I'm only reading the page numbers that I've circled and the things that I've highlighted. And then I'll write in the book. So just like you, I write in the book, I'll write notes, I'll reflect. Sometimes I'll rewrite all of those potential actions down on a, on a yellow legal pad and I'll think about them. Like I I think that reading and then note-taking and reflection are almost two separate activities. And so the note-taking and retention piece, I rewrite everything. And then here's the kicker for me. I'll look at those, let's say 10 potential actions to take. And I'll say, not all of these are created equal, right? I'm only looking to implement two things. So what has the highest leverage? 20% of these might lead to 80% of the change. And for me, that's realistic action. So that's better than trying to implement all 10 things and failing to implement any. And uh, some of them might be easier to implement too. So that's sort of what my process looks like. But I think when I first started, it was just, it was always taking notes in real time, reflecting, like I might read one page 
and then sit on that one page for an hour. <laughs> Nowadays, I try to finish the book, get all the context, build the foundation of knowledge, and then go back and reflect on the individual things that I want to implement. Yeah, so I think, well, and I think there are two schools of readers. There are people who reread. So in my book, The Anatomy of a Bestseller, I talk about this because I don't think that there is one way to do this. So I am a one and done. I do not reread ever because I retain so much. So for me, it's really painful to have to reread the same stuff over and over again. So for example, I can say to you, okay, so I read a book by, um, let's say, uh, Alex E. Harrow, and she had a particular description about a door and I'll be able to go to that book and I'll be able to open the book to more or less the page in which that description is in um whereas there are some people who um need like the context of the story in order to then be able to go back and do that deconstruction I think it's a little bit like um I don't know if you've ever heard of like pantsers or plotters like so people who either plan outline the story before they start or they need to just like pants the story, like right into the dark free write the story and then put the structure in afterwards. And I feel like it's that that on that continuum of readers who do that as well. So I find that really, really interesting. Um, yeah, but I do like what you're saying about um, like the focus. It does drive me insane sometimes that it takes me longer to read uh, when I'm doing that kind of intensive reading. Uh, there was something else I wanted to ask you about, but it slipped out of um, my head. Ah, like speed. So you you have a whole section in your book about speed and why speed isn't necessarily important, but also about how you can read more. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, perhaps? Yeah, there's a great metaphor that that deals with a car. So picture yourself driving through a neighborhood, you're going pretty slow. And as a result, your mind can wander a little bit. You can check out the houses that you're passing, the landscaping, the cars in the driveway, like, oh, look, a G-Wagon or whatever. Or you could peer through the window, look at that library with the ladders and everything. Um, and that's because you're driving slow. But now imagine yourself speeding through that neighborhood as fast as humanly possible. Like your eyes would have to be glued to the road and there's no opportunity for your mind to wander. So when I think about reading books, I think about this same thing. If you are reading very slow, you're, you're not using your brain's full faculties. Like you have the ability to wander because you're reading at a much slower rate than your brain's capable of reading. And therefore, again, you wander and then you drift off and then you start thinking about lunch tomorrow. And now you're like, what did I even just read? And so nonfiction books like personal development, sometimes they're not as engaging as a, as a fiction book, right? And so the information can be dry. And as a result, your mind starts to wander if you're not interested in the material that much. So that's why I say read faster, try to read faster. I've done some speed reading courses and I've learned a lot of those techniques. I don't really use them. They're not as enjoyable for me. I do think it's important to have some room for reflection uh, to be able to digest what you're reading. But as far as like removing sub vocalization and things like that, I'm not there yet. Maybe there will be a day where I am, but my book rise of the reader is written for somebody who's just getting into this world of personal development. And I think that's, that's like a couple steps too far, you know? Yeah, I I can't I funny enough know some people that have competed in the like world speed reading competitions and it like blows my mind how quickly but not just how quickly it's the level of accuracy and recall yes. that they have like like how how I can turn off sub vocalization 
but I only do it when I'm like doing what I call gorging. So like if I just want to gorge content in a particular genre that I'm trying to study and I just need to like feel the genre and it's more about like the beats and the pace that you kind of get intuitively then I will turn off sub vocalization for that purpose but like you I actually don't find it as enjoyable um Mm. as I do like reading and hearing the words like in my mind but it does have its purposes sometimes when you just need to inhale content um okay you you have some really interesting ideas about entertainment to reading ratios um, and and how we can find more time to read. Like a lot of my listeners are have full time jobs. Um, they are trying to write in 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 the in between you know hours, and a lot of them also have either children or caring responsibilities or you know whatever. How do we get more time? Now, I love to start with the question: If I paid you ten thousand dollars to read a book by the end of the month, do you think you could do it? And that same time pressured do it uh, parent or, or or whatever, they're like, "Yes, yeah, sign me up. I'll read five, yeah, right?" And yeah. so they've fallen into my trap because what they don't realize is they've admitted that they can read; they're just choosing not to, right? They don't value the reading enough to prioritize it in their calendars. So before I talk about that reading to entertainment, or sorry, entertainment to education ratio, I'll mention what you can do in 15 minutes twice a day. So I give this example in the book as well. Let's say that you choose to replace a low impact activity like social media just for 15 minutes in the morning with reading a great book. And you do the same thing with the first 15 minutes of your Netflix in the evening. That's a half an hour of reading a day by replacing again, something that is mostly meaningless with something that could be constructive and help you solve problems or develop skills. So that's a half an hour a day. For somebody who's just starting out, let's say that's 20 pages. 20 pages, five days a week, Monday through Friday, take the weekends off is 100 pages a week. And most of these books in the personal development space nowadays, they're only 200 pages long on average, maybe 250 pages. So that's a book every two, maybe three weeks, two and a half weeks. It's 20 to 26 books a year just by replacing a little bit of social media scrolling in the morning and a little bit of your Netflix habit in the evening with reading a powerful book. So it doesn't have to happen in this big lifestyle change or anything like that. It can happen in the small moments. And so, okay, 20 to 26 books a year just by reading twice a day for 15 minutes. That's great. Uh, Now we'll talk a little bit about that uh, education or entertainment to education ratio. So I started to think about this one time uh, when I I was reading a book, I think it was about sports and fitness. And it said, at first, it was like an athletic to entertainment ratio. And it it was asking, how much time do you spend in the gym versus watching other people play sports? Uh, And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Like if, if you're only in the gym two hours a week, but you watch football for 10 hours every weekend, like that's a one to five ratio. That's not very good. You're spending five times more time watching other people play sports than actually engaging in them yourself. And then I started to think about like reading and education versus entertainment. Same kind of question. You know, are you consuming or creating? Are you consuming or or like what are you consuming? So if you watch, let's just say 20 hours of Netflix and social media per week, but you only read positive constructive material for four hours a week right? There's five times more entertainment than there is education. That's not a healthy place to be. 
that's living living under your potential as far as I'm concerned. And so measure it. Remember, what's not being measured can't be managed. You need to have a baseline. And let's say your baseline is one hour of education for every five hours of entertainment. Now you have something measurable to work from. You can try to get to like a one-to-one ratio, which I think is a much healthier place to be. So anyway, that's just kind of how I think about it. And I understand that that might not be the best fit for everybody in the audience today, but think about entertainment versus writing ratios. Like how often are you consuming content versus creating content? That might be a healthy thing to start measuring for yourself. Well, so here's the interesting thing. I think this goes back to um, your Clifton strengths. So I have two Clifton strengths. One is learner, that's at four, and one is input, which is at nine. And they have different things, but what it does mean is that in order for me to generate creative energy pennies, in order to be able to output, I need to input. So I um, used to read 52 books a year. That was like year in, year out, I'd read 52 books a year. Um, And then I did my strengths and I realized that I had uh, learner and input. And then also that I'm number one competition, which tends to like 10x everything else, right? So I was like, oh, I wonder if like, I, you know, doubled my reading. What effect would that have on my writing? So instead of reading a book a week, I then set my goal at 104 books for the year. And I immediately saw a 30% increase in my output of words because I measure Mm. my words and I track my words. So there is a directly proportionate correlation to the amount I input to the amount that I can output. So, and like for some people that input is TV, like in a, um, I don't find, I don't get that. I don't really watch much TV. I get many more pennies from reading, but there are other people I know who get more pennies from like that episodic kind of storytelling than they do from books. But how much Netflix do you watch? (laughs) My wife loves watching Netflix. (laughs) So as a result, we, we probably watch... I want to say we probably average 90 minutes a night. Okay. That's so not too bad, 90, I don't think. 90 minutes, I would say five days a week, weekends, maybe even, I'd say average seven nights a week. Sometimes we don't watch any, sometimes we watch more on the weekends. So yeah, I would say 90 minutes a day. And I, I am, uh, so I'm in the Boston, Massachusetts, USA area, and I'm a big American football fan. And so- I do watch a lot of football on the weekends. (laughs) And what's interesting about my consumption of football, though, is that it's used as a, and this is probably in self-defense of something you didn't even accuse me of doing. (laughs) It's, uh, I use it as a networking tool. So a lot of times when I'm meeting with authors, I'll bring up football and, you know, I can talk about that sport and build a lot of rapport. And so that's how I justify it to myself. (laughs) on the weekends so are all the authors that you talk to male no but i would say two-thirds of them probably are interesting interesting yeah okay two-thirds of the 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 self-development personal development authors that end up booking a sales call with us uh, because we have an outbound sales team so there's i mean everybody gets a touch i would say we're reaching out to more female authors than we are men but maybe it's the nature of the community that i've built or uh me when people click to our profile most I'd say two thirds of the sales calls that I host are probably with men. Okay. So how do you, and this is just me, the feminist in me being interested now of your reading or like 
uh, with your like really wide kind of lens scope of looking at self-development, what do you think the ratio is of kind of female authors to male authors? You know, it's interesting. I've, I've gone back and I've looked at our Instagram page, like what we're promoting a number of times, and it's actually closer to 50, 50. Oh, cool. So I think I have a higher sales success ratio with female authors than I do men. Cause I'm meeting with more men, but there's a lot of, sometimes there's a lot of ego, there's comparison, there's things like that, that pop up, uh, especially with like a lot of the business style authors and stuff like that. Like, I don't need your help. I don't need you to promote my book. I just jumped on to see what this was all about. So there is some of that sometimes. I think there's probably a 50-50 reading ratio. Oh, cool. Oh, well, I like that's cool. I was worried there for a second that like, you know, I would have to encourage all the women I know to start writing, you know, self-development stuff. I mean, to, you know, to kind of expose myself a little bit, I did receive some feedback when we first started our podcast that I was interviewing too many men. And it did cause me to sort of self-reflect a little bit. Like when I, before I was reading any paid content, right. And before I was really aware of this, um, I did read mostly books written by men in the business space, even though 50% of books in the business and self-development space were written by women. And so it did cause me to pause and and start to think about like why that was. Um, so I think I've self-corrected quite a bit since then. Oh, well, that's fantastic. I think, I you know, I think it's, a, it's the case for any kind of uh, diversification, you know, people of color authors or, you know, authors who are, you know, w- whatever. I'm just, I think we all have to be very conscious of what we read and try and set that intention, as you said, to intentionally read more broadly, you know, to ed- educate ourselves. Okay, last question. And then I have to ask you the ultimate podcast question. Looking back, if you could tell past you, anything one lesson you know as you're starting out this journey what was it 10 years ago I think you said um what would you tell little Nick (laughs) I would tell him slow and steady wins the race there were far too many times that I tried to make a big jump in my business or a big lifestyle change and I ended up failing and reverting back to where I was before I wasted a lot of time energy and money trying to make big steps when I would have been much more efficient understanding that no matter how many times you read Aesop's fable, the tortoise and the hare, the tortoise always wins, right? Slow and steady, the compound effect, small steps in the right direction every single day. That's that's the game that I'm winning at right now. And it's creating tremendous progress in my business and my relationships and my health and my personal finances. Uh, so that's what I would say. Slow and steady. Don't, don't try to look for a ginormous shortcut, like just show up every day and do the right foundational small stuff. Yeah, I love that. There is no silver bullet, just just the work, just the showing up. Amazing. Okay, well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. So tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. I would say starting my business. I I grew up in in a traditional sort of nine to five environment. I was educated to sort of fall in line, not not be a rebel to conform, right? I think one of the big problems with the US public education system is that you're taught to be a cog in the machine. You know, you're taught not to fight back or think differently. You're penalized uh, for not agreeing with a teacher on a test, right? And having the wrong opinion. It's a really strange environment. And then the idea of, well, I don't think I fit into this narrative. Like, I think I have to start my own business and build a business that and a lifestyle that uniquely fulfills me. 
uh, and starting the business and then kind of building a team and growing to where I am today. I think that's the most rebellious act I've ever had. Like, hey, nine to five, I don't want to live this lifestyle anymore and quitting that job and going all in on myself. So that's uh, that's what comes to mind when you ask me about it. I love it. I think, yeah, creating the life you don't want to take a vacation from is like, what What more can you ask from? Obviously, I love a vacation, but also I love coming home to the work. <laughs> yeah, me okay. too. And I, I, I saw a reel recently where somebody was like, uh, I just wish I could get paid to read. You know, that, that was like the reel. And there were like 50,000 likes on it. And I thought, well, I get paid to read. I mean, it is possible to design that life for yourself. <laughs> So, yeah, we're all capable of doing it. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Well, tell everyone where they can find out more about your book, um, where they can find out more about you, your services that you've talked about, and anything else that you would like to add. Yeah, if, if anybody in the audience today is new to the world of personal development and they're like, well, maybe there are some problems in my life that I could solve, but I'm not really sure where to start. I would say DM me at BookThinkers on Instagram. I love playing like a book matchmaking role, (laughs) books that solve problems and develop skills specifically. And tell me about the problem you're facing that you just can't get rid of or that you just can't find a solution for. And I will either provide a recommendation myself or lean into my community a little bit and see if anybody has a, a book recommendation to solve your problem. So that's my favorite thing to do at BookThinkers on Instagram. And then from there, there are links in the bio to find everything else that you might want. Amazing. Well, I will put links to that and the book and everything else uh, in the show notes. So thank you so much for your time today. And yeah, of course, thank you. You're more than welcome. And thank you, of course, to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Nick Hutchison, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Holger Niels-Paul, and we actually have a wide-ranging conversation. Some of it is about writing high-quality children's books, about creating clarity, visual uh, diagrams, and how being uh, putting your books in visual format really helps, and a whole bunch of other things. So I hope you'll join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcast. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.